Welcome, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners across the country or possibly on our very own podcast, where there is occasionally, hasn't been for a while, but hopefully very soon, additional random things. Stefan, uh, Stefan, I'm going to make hand signs here while Stefan's mic turns on. Uh, Stefan is going to be joining us in a second. Um, but uh, what we have today on our show today is that uh, one of my old professors is actually going to be in the building. Uh, Professor Danny Harvey from the University of Toronto uh, is going to be joining us. He is a uh, U of T's or one of U of T's resident climate experts. And so Stefan and I do our very best to... Uh, pretend that we're climate experts. We're really climate enthusiasts, which I don't know if maybe come up with a better way to describe it. Yeah, climate enthusiasts makes it seem like we're like rooting for climate change. <laughs> okay. It's like, well, I guess, it, I mean, enthusiasts could just be like interested in it. Sure. You know, we're not, you know, it's like there are birders who are bird enthusiasts. Well, and then there are like there's know, ornithologists. World, there's World War II enthusiasts, isn't there? And, that, and they're they not certainly war. Yeah, exactly. Not, well, necessarily. Yeah, exactly. And Or at least, yeah, the, the, their work towards right. trying to understand World War II right. does not necessarily equate them wanting a World War III, perhaps. Right, exactly. You can be World War II enth enthusiast without being a World War III enthusiast. Sure. Okay, so uh, uh, name to be potentially adjusted climate enthusiasts. Yes. Uh, but we have an actual climate expert. So Danny Harvey's going to join us uh, in a little while. He's going to talk about some actual hard science that backs up some of the sort of offhand comments Stefan and I make. Of course, Stefan and I do our very best to be as well as informed as possible at all times. Uh, and we also try and be as uh, direct and... Uh, 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 forthcoming with when we are uh, pontificating, which is what, what by which I mean when we're making guesses. We try and be really accurate about that. So it's really nice because we, you know, we try and do the best we can. And we think we do a pretty good job of getting all the facts right. It is very useful both to us and we think for our listeners to have an actual expert come in every once in a while and correct us. So uh, we are going to have Danny Harvey and he could possibly be in for a good chunk of the show more than an interview. We'll see how long he will stick around with us because I would love to talk to him about a wide variety of topics. But primarily, um, we've been, uh, he's going to, he, uh, he was co-author on a couple of reports and I believe the lead author on uh, another uh, uh, paper that was published uh, on something that is very direct to what news we've been talking about, which is can Canada get its greenhouse gas emissions down to its target levels by 2030 with the current plan with expanding the oil sands. Uh, we've said that we don't think so. We've said that that's a bad idea. We've said that that's risky. Danny actually knows the answer. So that will be coming up later. He will have facts, figures, data. He will tell us what the real skinny on that story is. Uh, I have also a number of other questions for him as well. He also uh, was one of the authors on a uh, report uh, looking at global trends as well. So we'll be doing a deep dive on climate from a science point of view, from a, a hard science point of view, uh, both Canada and the world coming up later. But Stefan is going to talk to us a little bit about reconciliation first. So I give it to you now, Stefan, to take it from there. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, so I, I'm, I've been away for two weeks, so it's lovely to be back. Oh, yeah. Also, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, and, and in those two weeks, we managed to experience, witness, live through uh, m two different complete and utter failures of the Canadian justice system uh, to to respond to indigenous needs. Uh, the, the Just yesterday, the, the, the ruling came down that the for the in the murder of Tina Fontaine, which found um, which which found the, the the man not guilty, and once again, and about two weeks ago or a week and a half ago, uh, the same ca ruling came down in the murder for of Colton Bushy, um, and both of these are 
proof uh, as, as the, how far we as Canada have to go when it comes to reconciliation. And, and if you want to see further proof of that fact, look no further than the, the Twitter mentions of the indigenous people who expressed sorrow at the lack of justice, only to be sort of attacked uh, mob style by, by a variety of, of people who, who just spit some of the most vile racist things you can imagine. And so this... And so I felt like the need to speak on this in part because this lack of justice comes from the same place of colonization narrative that allows society to treat indigenous lives as lesser and that allows governments to, uh, to ignore their treaty rights. And so we, when we as environmentalists uh, lift up these treaty rights when we're, say, fighting a pipeline, uh, this is the other part of that allyship, I guess. You can't, I don't think you can, you cannot, in my mind, fight for treaty rights when they're, when they're convenient for you and ignore when the justice system fails these sort of lives and when you fail reconciliation. Here, here. Um, and so, yeah, and so the fact that we cannot be allies over pipelines and then silent when lives are lost leads me to sort of this conclusion that this is all one fight in some in some in some ways, and especially when it comes to sort of these young people. Um, you know, Tina was 15 when she died. Uh, Colton in his early 20s, and when you look at the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission of Canada, the f out of the 94 recommendations, the first 12 address injustices that are being perpetuated on Indigenous youth. Some of them are being, you know, many of them are being pulled away from their homes. Others are being sent to to worse and and failing um, school systems. And and so the concept of this combination of, of reconciliation and, and youth and the need to invest in in the future in so many different ways comes through. And another 12 in the uh, 12 recommendations in the Reconciliation Committee come out and and look at the reform of the justice system. So if you want to if you're trying to ask yourself what can be done uh, to work forward on these types of issues, there's 24 already pre-written recommendations for us to start working on and working forward. And I think this is dire and required and necessary. And I think if the, if we can find the ways of the, of, of the, we can't, ex we can't allow these sort of deaths to go unnoticed. We can't allow the deaths of Tina Fontaine and Colton Bushy to, to not push us forward in these reforms. Uh, and else reconciliation is nothing but placation. It's nothing but words. And that's, that's been an attack on the concept of reconciliation since it's begun, but I think each time we let something like this go through without it really being responded to, it gets closer and closer to being the case. You know, it's just one of those things where action breeds action, and so we need something to happen, basically. And so we as environmentalists must understand that a societal shift does not it does not address these sort of great injustices that are <clears throat> that 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 our lives are based on is not an option. Um, you know, if without a true reaction to to these types of injustices, and to not without us to learn our history and know and learn our history uh, of the land we live on, we are doomed to fail. I think in in a variety of ways, um, and it's because it's, it's because these echoes of the residential school systems injustices and and systematic injustices are as present as they are today as they were when the last residential school was shut down in 1996, and. I'm currently in a highly recommend reading uh, Tanya Talagaga's book, Talagaga, sorry, or Talaga, sorry, um, Seven Fallen Feathers, and because it, it does a fantastic job of 
it looks at seven uh, different indigenous youth who all lost their lives in Thunder Bay and sort of the systematic oppression that sort of surrounds the, the schooling system, the residential school system. And it dives into sort of a whole host of these issues. And, and also encourage everyone to read up on the deaths of Tina and Colton so that we can work to dismantle the system of oppression that we currently live in. And so if you are the type of person who, uh, who feels comfortable in large crowds um, and is the kind of person who wants to sort of take true and sort of to the streets kind of action, uh, at 2 o'clock on Saturday, there's going to be protests here in Toronto. There's protests, across, there's protests rallies or rallies of support for, Justin, for justice uh, for Tina Fontaine across Canada. So please look for the one close to you. I know there's one at 2 p.m. At, at, um, in Toronto at Ethan Phillips Square. And so I encourage you to, to go out and, and sort of be, show your allyship at these times as well is, is really the ask and the call. Uh, because, the, and I think this can be true and because the fact that this sort of need to 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 to, to dismantle the system uh, can be true without limiting the magnitude of of, of climate change, I think there's all there's a, this tension that still sort of somehow exists with environmentalists about the concept that you know we have to focus on climate change at all costs in some extent, and I and I think that we have to understand this concept that this problem can't be solved without a reckoning for all of the parts of the system that we built, and and this is fundamentally a part of that system that we built and and so it has to it has to be part of it mm. and 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 to, to highlight the magnitude of this problem you know we do this a lot and we're having jenny harvey for the next little bit which will which will help but even just one example of sort of the the dangers of delay shall we say um came out in an article from the washington post about a recent study that came out on tuesday that shows that every five years of delay so this is like this is a concept that if you look back on 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 previous episodes we talked a bit about predatory delay and this concept of like every every it's 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 hard to see delay as as inaction it's hard to see delay as evil I guess it it's easy actually for the listeners to if they missed that episode to find it because I in fact titled it predatory delay well there you go um and because I guess it, it, it comes from a, a concept that I first heard from uh, a futurist named Alex Steffen and he talks about the concept of how difficult it is to see inaction as abuse you know uh, to see inaction as 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 a uh, as, as violence, I guess is a, is a way to say it. Um, and yet, when it comes to things where, you know, it comes to something like climate change or other systematic impressions, that's exactly what inaction is, you know, and, and especially with climate change, as it's it's not only it's not only just perpetuating, allowing for further injustices, it's actually making it worse, right? Like every day we don't do something makes it worse. And this study sort of confirms that. Um, it basically finds that every five years that, of right now, of present day that we continue to put off strong action on climate change, the ocean would rise about eight additional eight inches uh, by the year 2300. And to give concept of eight inches, eight inches doesn't seem like a lot. I think it's one of those things that you can sort of be like, all right, eight inches is you know is something, but it doesn't necessarily feel like a ton. Um, to understand, eight inches is actually the entire amount of uh, of sea level rise that we saw in the entire 20th century. So for every five years we don't we don't we don't we don't, we don't act now we see it in a sea level rise of, of basically what the entire twentieth century saw, um, and and so this is this is what we talk about when we say how fast action has to happen and there's a lot of when you look at the Paris Climate Reviews and I'm sure Danny Harvey also touched on this of you know, there's a, there's a sort of a couple there's like three or four scenarios one it's 2025 one it's 2030 and one it's 2035. And each one sort of has a different sort of, and that's when we peak, and then and then and then the curve down comes afterwards. And if you look at the peak 
of of twenty at uh, uh, twenty twenty five, and in the in the curve, and then keeping the peak at twenty thirty in the curve, you realize how much action has to occur uh, sooner rather than later, and, and how much harder it gets with every single time we input, and we have any sort of input on that nature. And so, this is the this is the sort of thing that we're stuck with right now. Is that it's it's it's, a, it's incredible to think to see that these five year differences can have that important nature, and not to mention that that's just and that's like with each five years that happen right now. And so, the and and, it, and it's important to note that that the study considers only sea level rise scenarios that are consistent with the ambitious goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. So this is this is a this was a study that was done basically on if we make the Paris Climate Agreement, which we are in no way on pace to do. Uh, <laughs> more on that soon. More on that soon, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so even these, even these rosy, even, so these are like the best case scenarios, and even they are, are, are terrifying in some ways. Uh, you know, even these, the most rosy case scenarios, the study finds the seas could rise between 2.3 to, 2 to 4 feet by 2300, um, and, or about you know, 0.75 to 1.3 feet per century. And this, again, is the best case scenario. Um, and so inaction is incredibly dangerous. Um, and so, but, and, and so we need a, a holistic and immediate turnaround of some nature. And this is, can't, I, I struggle, I guess, to find the, the right words. And I think this has been a, I'm sure actually I'll be, I'll, I'll be interested to get Danny's opinion on this shortly, um, about just having done this. I you know we've been, I've been doing this for maybe five years on this show, uh, and talking about it for maybe seven or eight before that. I can only imagine someone who's trying to talk about it for 20 years, having to come up with new words for the level, <laughs> you know, like when you start 20 years ago and you start saying something like things are bad and then 15 years ago, <laughs> 40 years ago. Oh, man. All right. We've got dramatic. Dennis got dramatically. Dennis also walked in. So he's got dramatically more information on this. Um, but I can only imagine how hard it is to come up with new and newer and newer terms uh, to to look at all these different issues. And it's just it's just it's just mind blowing. Um, and so I'm yeah, I'm just going to I'm just going to that's 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 my bit. Uh, today. Well, I wanted and, to just before we, we're going to go to the break and, and we'll get Danny on uh, on here in just a minute. But I, I wanted to loop back just to the just to your opening topic there for a moment. So I uh, I did a talk for a uh, small group here in Toronto. It wasn't very large, but we thankfully recorded it because I'm actually pretty happy with the talk uh, for a group here in Toronto. And it was about essentially movement building, and it's it's a version of a talk that I've given a couple of times, um, <clears throat> and it very much plays on sort of what you were saying before, which is that you know comp just basic human decency should be enough. But if it isn't, <laughs> if it isn't, um, you know, if you, you know, when we talk about change, when we talk about change on the level that's required, you need a movement. It's not, you don't need a couple of people. You don't, it's not Elon Musk isn't a movement. You know, that's a, that's a business that that's doing well and it may do well or may not. And, you know, but it, we need a movement. We don't need a couple of innovative people. We don't need a couple of big thinkers. We need a movement to change stuff. And if you want to build a movement, you need everybody to be invested and everybody on board and feel like they're all on the same team. And so when we go and we want to hold up, as you say, and say, look, you know, you shouldn't build that pipeline because look at my brother and sister over here, uh, First Nations uh, people, look at their treaty rights. You're stomping all over them uh, when it's convenient for us. And then we're not there for them. As you said, that's that you're you are actively preventing movement because you're not, hey, you've asked me for something. Maybe I wanted to do it anyway. Maybe, maybe I already didn't want that pipeline. But you asked me to come on your radio show or you asked me to show up for your march or you asked me to sign your petition and hold up my treaty 
to protect your interests from climate change? Where were you the rest of the time? Uh, it really is upon us and, you know, uh, from morally, but if nothing else, just for the practical nature of it being effective, we have to be there for people that we're asking to be there for us. And, and I just wanted to triple down on your point there because I think it's worth noting to the point that I've done a 30-minute talk on the subject. So thank you for that. I think that was an excellent uh, intro. What, are we good? We'll go to break. Uh, yeah, we'll go to break. Just uh, what we will do is uh, we'll post the links, uh, the links to the um, to both the article about Sea Level Rise and also the actual the full Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action. There's 94 of them, uh, and I think they should be required reading for as many of us as we can. Great. Okay, so st we'll uh, I'll, I'll make sure that Stefan gets that to me and we get that on the website. We're going to go now to Stephen, who's in the booth there. He's going to tell us what our first music is, and then we'll be back with Professor Danny Harvey from U of T to talk about climate science. All right, and we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM on our possibly on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners across the country and internationally as well, and also on our podcast, which can be found along with all the show notes, uh, links to bad jokes, good references, and any other thing that we think you might be interested in uh, down there at greenmajority.ca. We now have the pleasure of receiving uh, uh, a former guest, but uh, more importantly to me personally, one of my former professors, uh, Danny Harvey, who, um, Danny, I haven't known you to go by Dr. Harvey, but you do have your PhD. Well, we all do, I think. Okay. A professor. <laughs> may I, for the purposes of today, just call you Danny? You may. You certainly may. Thank you. Uh, so uh, is uh, I, I came to know you as the prof uh, uh, t uh, instructor uh, for, um, at the time, and I, I don't know if it still is, uh, but essentially the highest level, the, the deepest science and a non-science streamed undergrad could take in the field of climate science. Is that still accurate? I think so. Okay. So what I wanted to start with here, so uh, just as far as background for people on you, you've uh, been referred to in, in, in e at minimum 50 articles here, just trying to count quickly, perhaps more than 100, dozens of book chapters. You've, you've uh, been involved in at least five books. Um, uh, over the course of about 40 years, I believe you said. Um, and I was, uh, I met you originally, as I say, as the professor of, of the undergrad sort of hard science, climate science course that would have been about 12 years ago now. And what I wanted to just open with was sort of what I was thinking about, because I saw an email from you and I thought, oh, we haven't talked to Danny in forever. He's still around. That's great. Okay, let's let's get him. Let's get him into the studio. Because for me, there, there was a really impactful. So I, I remember a considerable amount of that class. And I have been quoting things that I learned in your class um, to people for a decade now uh, from memory, because a lot of it really stuck with me. And but, but it wasn't so much about, you know, <laughs> it's not, I'm not here to suck up. Uh, the reason it's stuck in my brain is because it was dang hard. And what I really, I really had to work. And I, I believe if my memory serves me correctly, I got a 71 in your class. I'm hoping that we can up that a point or two today, Danny. Well, maybe, yes. We'll see. Okay. Uh, but I had to work my buns off. That was the, I, I didn't work as that hard for any other class. And I took both uh, accounting and first year economics, uh, also both notorious U of T difficult classes. This was by far the hardest. And the reason it was hard is not because it's science and not because it's math, although it's both of those things. Um, it was because so many of these concepts, and this is really where I wanted to start with you. So many of these concepts are incredibly counterintuitive. And what you did was you armed me for the rest of my life now that when I hear people talking nonsense, but 
sort of, if you don't know any better understandable nonsense about climate change, because they're not understanding a counterintuitive uh, concept, I know instinctively that if I don't know the answer, that I'm not suddenly concerned about, oh, maybe that is right. I know that there's counterintuitive concepts. I know to anticipate that. And I know to go and look up the right answer. And and and, and I know that some of these things, and, I, and I've borrowed some of your techniques about how to explain some of these concepts. So I want you, we're here today to talk to you about two papers that you were involved with. One of them, your co-author, I believe the other one, you're the lead author. Uh, but I would like to sort of introduce you to talking about the Canada-focused target uh, paper by way of that, uh, by way of comment about that very nature, about the trickiness of explaining this to people that don't have the time or willingness to really dive into it due to its complexity and its counterintuitiveness. Okay, well, I'll just make two comments. First of all, nature is complicated, and the climate system is complicated, and climate is changing, and it involves all these different variables and interactions. And if you look hard enough, you can find some observations somewhere that appears to be contradicting the mainstream science. And then if you take it out of context, it's easy to confuse people. And that's what the, the fossil fuel funded denial industry has done. They cherry pick facts out of context and they've been doing a pretty good job of confusing people just because of the inherent complexity of what we're looking at. and you know, all of these apparent contradictions, if you take enough time, you can see there's an explanation. And in fact, what you what was presented as contradicting the science actually confirms it. The other thing is, so that's sort of on the climate science part of the issue. Of course, the other complicated dimension of the global warming problem is the, the human response and what we what we do about it. And you know, global warming climate change is what they call a wicked problem, okay? Because we have to transform entire societal systems and there's economics and there's inertia and there's, there's technology and there's, there's path dependence. If you go one way, you lock in certain technologies and then by using them, they become cheaper and easier to use and then it becomes, and yet they're the wrong path and they become harder still than to switch. And of course, pipelines and infrastructure that support the fossil fuel industry, that is an example of what we call carbon lock-in. So, so those are sort of the two points I just wanted to make, the sort of the inherent complexity of the, of the underlying science, although overall everything is understood and consistent, and then the wickedness of this problem when you, when you look at the Human, and it's the human dimension combined with the fact that there are long lags, there are long delays. Like a lot of what we can see coming isn't manifesting itself yet because it just takes so long for the natural system to respond to what we're doing. So everything may look fine. Right, but in fact, it's not fine. Mm. Yeah, and I think the 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 a com somewhere between a combination of uh, the fact that most people who are not trained mathematicians are inherently and and for evolutionary reasons bad at big numbers. Mm -hmm. We're just mm -hmm. our brains are not designed to deal with big numbers and abstract concepts in that in that scale in in sort of real time. Uh, and I, it, to, for me, that's been w one of the biggest challenges in, in sort of explaining that. People, mm -hmm. you know, so people say, well, we need oil, so build oil pipelines. But, you know, as if it would be like, well, we need milk, so buy milk. No, 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 you're not buying milk. You're buying a milk subscription you can't back out of for the next 50 years. Do you need milk for 50 years? Are you sure? <laughs> like that, but that's not people's brains aren't designed to make, they're not thinking on that scale. 
right? And that's that's one of the big things that comes out of me. But I want to I want to really drill down because Dana, we spent the last couple of weeks before I even, in fact, before I even knew I was going to get you in the studio today, we've been talking quite a lot about this Kinder Morgan deal. So I'm going to get you to comment specifically on on sort of the 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 fluff, uh, the dust up, if you will, in the in the news in a moment. But sort of with an eye on that, let's dig into that first report. You. Um, uh, and I'm sorry, I closed my phone and I don't have it in front of me. You and your co-author. Um, uh, my student, Lee Kim Oh, your student. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, did a, a real de- a deep dive, if you will, on that speci- that very question. The, the government right now is saying, we're going to invest in these pipelines. Don't worry. That's going to help us out with our climate stuff. You know, it, this is all too complicated for you. Don't worry. We've got it. Um, you checked. <laughs> essentially yeah. is the lead up. What does it say? Well, I mean, the simple fact is we have an international promise, commitment to reduce our total greenhouse gas emissions by 30% from 2005 by uh, 2030, which is only 12 years from now. And where we are right now is emissions are down maybe a few percent, um, but they're nowhere close to the 30%. And it's really just arithmetic, right? You look at uh, what are we emitting, burning coal and oil or natural gas to generate electricity? What are we emitting in our transportation, cars and trucks? What are we emitting, burning natural gas to heat homes and buildings, other buildings and to make hot water or for industry? Um, and including that the emissions from the oil production from the tar sands and also from conventional oil. And Environment Canada, Environment and Climate Change Canada has done the scenarios and it takes into account the projected growth in tar sands oil production. It takes into account actually pretty aggressive efficiency measures and some shifting from coal to, to renewables and we don't even come close. We don't come close to the target. And this would, be, if we fail to meet this, this will be the third international promise we've made in the last 15 or 20 years that we're gonna renege on. So what we did was, okay, what would it take? Let's suppose we actually want to meet the targets. So, well, we could continue with tar sands oil expansion and reduce emissions everywhere else by 40% right, beyond the already aggressive environment and climate change Canada projections. That'll get us there, but how are you going to get everyone else who, first of all, agree to such a drastic reduction, much less carry it out? Or you could phase, uh, you could freeze the tar sands oil production and emissions at the current level, then you have to find reductions of 30% in the rest of the economy. Still a tall order. You want to do that in 12 years? or you phase out emissions, then the rest of the economy has to reduce emissions by 16% above and beyond already pretty aggressive reductions uh, projected by Environment Canada. And then that gets you there. Then we're actually living up to our international commitment. So it's only under the scenario where we phase out, we wind down the tar sands emissions where we have a chance of living up to our own international promises. So, but now the Kinder Morgan, Kinder Morgan pipeline is about expanding uh, oil sands production and emissions. That, I mean, that we shouldn't even be considering that. We shouldn't even be, con- it's, it's like it's a no-brainer. It's completely contrary to what we've promised 
to do and what we said we want to do and what the science tells us we need to do if we want to avoid the risk of catastrophic climatic change. It's just completely contrary to even contemplate any increase. So it's just like the conversation is just completely off in another world. And what we did in writing our papers, we're saying outright we need to have a national conversation, not about pipelines, but about winding down, phasing out altogether the tar sands and how to do that in an orderly way, in a way that doesn't kill the economy of Alberta or the rest of the country, that preserves jobs. I, I mean, because there are people that, you know, they have families, they have mortgages, of course, those are important and people need jobs, but the future isn't going to be in the, in the oil economy. Right. And, and uh, so there's, there's two things there I want to I want to ask you to drill into and I'll do them in sequential order. They occurred in my brain in the hopes that I don't forget the second one. Yeah. Uh, the first one was, can we drill into scenario two there for a minute? Because so scenario two was the we 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 take it from other places. We take the cuts from other places because that's the one that I hear referred to the most, whether it be from the government or whether it be from, uh, you know, oil pr uh, promoting sources, whether that be, you know, more right leaning newspapers or whatever, whoever it might be or ads or industry groups the love to say well, don't worry, you know what, this is going to be so valuable, it's going to make us so much money that we're going to have more resources to deal with this problem if we do it. That's essentially the argument. And that's an argument that they that regardless of which government's been in power, they've been fairly good at convincing people. Can can we drill on that for a minute? What to, to any degree is there validity there that, that maybe we'll make some short-term losses to make long-term gains? Do you buy that at all? Well, not at all. I mean, there's just no validity to that argument. We need emission reduction. So how do you do that? Transportation, cars. Everybody could drive 30% or 40% less, or, um, and actually more than that because there's population growth. So we, you know, we could drive half as much, or we could drive cars that get twice the efficiency, twice the fuel economy. Well, it turns out that you know we have the technical means. We can project, and there's been fairly detailed studies done by Argonne National Lab in the U.S. showing that you know we could we could quadruple the fuel efficiency of cars while running still on gasoline. We don't need to go to electric vehicles to get a four times greater efficiency. That means, you know, you divide by four. If you're getting four times the efficiency and you're driving the same amount, mm. you're going to use one quarter the, the, the gasoline. So, but to do that, we need now, we need stringent um, regulations. We have on the books, you know, a doubling in the fuel efficiency of new cars by 2025. But we're actually not going to get that because there's enough loopholes in it that it's actually not going to happen. So we need to close those loopholes. And then we need to go beyond that. You need three times and four times, right, the efficiency. But then it takes time for the complete turnover of the fleet. So like what I consider is a scenario where the whole fleet is four times more efficient by 2045 or 2050, right? We're aiming towards that. Then we've got enough of a reduction of the fleet in place by 2030 that, you know, we're maybe cutting our actual um, passenger car emissions in half. So you do the same thing for, for buildings. Yes, we could some of these old buildings, we could cut the, the natural gas use for heating by 90%. But how much of the building stock can you renovate 
a year, 2%, 3%. So we're talking a 30 to 40 year transition. Again, mid-century, but you got to start now. Mm-hmm. You have to have a plan now, right? Now, you know, all of these things, let me draw this analogy, okay? It's, it's the Stanley Cup final. Okay. Or it's the Olympic gold medals. Okay, whatever. <laughs> it's the Stanley Cup final, last round, game seven, third period, two minutes left, right? And you're behind one goal, right? What do you do? Well, you pull your goalie, right? You put your best players on the ice, right? And you get that tying goal. Now, analogously, our best players, our best actions, it's energy efficiency, it's renewable energy, it's it's a transmission grid infrastructure for renewable energy. It's carbon pricing to provide the economic incentives, right? Those are the things, those are the best players in terms of responding to the problem, right? And we wanna, we wanna get the tying goal. We wanna make that transition and then hope that the climate gives us a break and we don't have catastrophic change and we can actually you know, solve the problem definitively in overtime. What you don't do is turn around and shoot the puck into your own empty <laughs> net right after you pulled your goalie, right? So it's like we're going to do don't pull in. You don't pull your forwards and put in two goalies. <laughs> right. So it's like we're, we're, we're making all these efforts. We're making all these efforts to try to reduce emissions. Why then cancel it all out by pr- building pipelines and promoting tar sands? I mean, we need, Alberta needs, the whole country needs to phase out coal, right, for electricity production. And we can do that. Okay, but then that would all be canceled out by the growth in tar sands emissions. So you're you're trying to get a tying goal, but now you shoot in your own empty net. You got to get two t- two more goals, right, to tie it up. You don't win the game that way. Yeah, and it, it, just a quick note on that as well, too. And maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I hope if not, maybe Stefan can. But my understanding with that is because like jobs is a thing. But well, we have to protect about Albertan jobs. They're talking about an expansion, which means they're talking about future jobs. So nobody's yes. losing their job. They're talking yes. about a, a job not gained. Yeah, which could be gained in any sector. Like, yeah. So that's like the, the biggest BS argument in the history of the world because they're talking about theoretical future jobs. You could plan different theoretical future jobs. Like, so saying that you're, you're stealing jobs or you're, you're killing the economy or, the, or you're taking money out of people's families is such manipulative garbage. Well, it is when it comes to the pipe. <laughs> it is yeah. when it comes to the pipeline. With the expansion. Has, which yes. has to do with expansion. With expansion yes. But I'm saying we actually need to go beyond that. We need yeah. to talk about winding down this operation. Mm -hmm. And so we do have to find alternative jobs. But if we need to, and we do, we have to retrofit the entire building stock. There's those jobs. Yes, but of course, they're (laughs) going to be spread across the country. But there's another issue. Let's suppose the rest of the world takes its commitments, its promises seriously. I mean, every nation of the world signed on to a goal of limiting global mean warming to no more than two degrees above industrial, pre-industrial levels. So now you use the science, the, cl- the climate science, what, where do global emissions have to go to have a two-thirds chance, which is still not a great odds, <laughs> I right? don't know if I like it's it, only yeah. a two-thirds chance. <laughs> emissions, global emissions need to go to zero by 2060. So now, uh, the, uh, one of the other papers I sent you was looking at scenarios. What, what, what in terms of concrete measures 
actionable items, what combination of things need to be done. There are various combinations of things that will get you there. Okay, so zero oil use by 2060. Now you work out what is the cumulative oil consumption uh, up to then. It's so many trillion or billion barrels of oil. And then you look at, okay, how much oil remains in the world that can be extracted, produced at $20 a barrel, $30 a barrel, $40. It turns out there's enough oil at $30 a barrel or less, right, to tide us through to the end of the oil age, to that zero emissions by 2030. So if that happens, right, you, and you use oil in the order of increasing cost, and of course, barring um, wars in the Middle East, which we shouldn't be hoping for as, you know, to justify our plans, um, you know, barring things like that or geopolitical considerations, uh, oil need not rise above $30 a barrel. Okay, and even if, if if oil demand falls only in half, and we're still using it at the end of the century, there's enough oil at fifty dollars a barrel or less, okay, to tide us over. Now, um, at thirty dollars a barrel, there's always going to be a discount in the price that tar sands oil will fetch of about fifteen dollars relative to the. Um, to the international price because it is lower quality oil. And so building pipelines, getting the oil to Tidewater, you're still going to pay, we're still going to get $15 less than the going rate. So if the going rate is $30 a barrel or $40 a barrel, that means you can fetch $15 or $25 a barrel. And that is you know, just barely, if that, break even on existing operations and it means any expansion is, is money losing. So I there's a good chance, right, that there are going to be imposed reductions on us from external factors. So as sort of a defensive economic measure, we should be planning to produce a lot less. And then the final thing is the technology exists. I mean you just have to look at what's happening with electric vehicles. I mean some people are predicting even sooner we're not going to be using oil for, for transportation by 2030. I mean, if that's the case, the price drops even more dramatically. Yeah. And we actually have a, a resident uh, correspondent who's an EV uh, specialist who will uh, probably email me, probably my phone is buzzing, I bet that's our, our Matthew Klippenstein right now, yes. uh, emailing me with the answer to that proposition. <laughs> so we, we will find out, if I if he emails me, I will find out the answer to that question or, or more detail about it. So one other thing I wanted to specifically ask you about, and I, this may be outside your field, I, this may be outside of what you've studied, but it's something uh, we've talked about on the show, which is, you know, we, you mentioned this, um, the idea that sort of, you know, Canada's current plan seems to imply, if you're looking at it, it seems to imply an assumption that nobody else is going to act either. Like that, that seems, would that be your read as well, is that they seem to be acting as if this is sound business because nobody else is going to take their targets e seriously either. So this is sort of our realistic plan based on what we really think is going to happen. Is that if inaccurate or unfair or how would you read Canada's current policy? Yeah, well, it seems to me, yeah, I mean, if you're going to build pipelines and invest to expand in tar sands oil production, you know, you're betting against, you're betting that the rest of the world is not what is not going to do what it needs. You're betting against your own children's future. You're really, in a way, making the bet that your future, your children, are going to have a pretty miserable future. Yeah. 
Well, and the, and the part that I was was wondering, the, specifically the part that I was wondering was outside of, uh, was whether or not was outside of sort of what you'd looked at or, or whether or not you feel comfortable commenting on was the idea that one of the things, that, at least just from our reading of the news over the last while, was that one of the countries that does seem to be taking it seriously, whether or not they're bragging about it, is China. And so if China does take it seriously, makes all those huge transitions and nobody else does, we're essentially handing the economic future to China. Well, well China is now the largest market in the world for electric vehicles. They call them NEVs or new energy vehicles, and that includes full battery electric and 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 plug-in hybrids. So yeah, they I mean, they're pretty much the largest market in the world for wind for new wind energy, for new solar energy, for solar thermal energy, for um, for electric vehicles, and they're 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 investing massively. And of course, they have huge pollution issues. And I mean, this is the thing about the solutions. Whatever solution you propose, or the whole matrix of solutions that we need um, to address the threat of global warming, they all provide immediate local benefits, right? Reduced air pollution, uh, reduced traffic congestion, um, uh, more comfortable buildings because energy efficient buildings are, are more comfortable, they're more durable. I mean, there's just so many problems related to buildings falling apart and leakage and so on that are related to just shoddy design, which are which is driving up the energy use. So to have really low energy buildings, it just means high quality, durable buildings that are comfortable and, and fun to be inside. Uh, Danny, I'm so glad you'd said that because that was my last, we we're out of time. We're actually over time already, but I, it's my show. I don't mind. Um, I'm so glad you made that segue because that was actually my last sne- before we sneak you out the door question, which was that was one of the other things that I that is burned in my brain from taking your class was the very end of the course. We were looking at comparative design uh, standards between Germany and I, I don't remember if we were talking specifically at Ontario or what the sort of Canadian representative was, but I remember two things. One, Germany at the time, this was 10 years ago, was kicking our butts. Yeah. And the other thing I remember, and I've actually, t- I've said this now, I've spread this knowledge to now to dozens of peoples because it's stuck in my brain's file of like fun facts to tell people about mm-hmm. stuff, which was that the the current condo design that exists of like slab sheet concrete that runs through the middle of the building and those connectors down is if you if you look at it on a floor pan matches how you would design a radiator. <laughs> and, I, and I remember hearing that from you and I've never forgotten it. And it was 10 years later. And I've said that to like 50 people since then. And everyone, and including my, bro- including my brother who, who works in, like actual like contracting and stuff like that. And, and many people have found that very interesting. Have we improved is my final question. Are we doing any better? Is Germany still kicking our butts? Well, I, Germany is still at the forefront, but we are <laughs> starting to catch up. And I mean, the Ontario Climate Action Plan, you know, if it survives the next provincial <laughs> election, I mean, it's got some pretty aggressive targets. I mean, it's targeting that all new buildings by 2030 are to be net zero carbon, uh, new buildings up to a certain size. Um, it's got, you know, very ambitious targets. And it's also um, talking about no, no natural gas. I mean, I mean, new buildings from 2030 on are going to be have to heat themselves with some means other than using natural gas. Um, and this was Glenn Murray's um, initiative, and in fact, he was just in town uh, and talking about that two nights ago. So, um, yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of good initiative. We've got carbon pricing, and it's raising about a billion and a half dollars a year, and that's going to fund retrofits and other measures. So, you know, Ontario, Quebec, British Columbia, California, 
Um, they're together part of this uh, network. And then a few states in, in New England. And, you know, things are depressing or laughable at the federal level uh, in many respects <laughs> in, the, in, in the United States. But there's a lot of good action happening at the, at the state and city levels. And there's a lot of coordination occurring province to province and state to state and city to city. So, you know, um, it may, I have what one of my friends calls rational optimism. <laughs> and I find sometimes I find myself, why am I so happy and why am I so optimistic? I just think somehow we're going to pull it together and sort of the inherent rationality. I mean, I don't think, you know, three and a half years of evolution on planet Earth is all going to go to waste. <laughs> so uh, I want to, we've actually had in the past on the show, Danny, people where I had a guest on and we talked about a topic or, or I made an argument where we were actually, because we're syndicated across the country and we have some, some American stations and, and podcast listeners all over the world. And we've been re reached out to over the years by people saying, oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Can we get a copy of that? Because we're going to use that in our local initiative or, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we have a presentation in front of city council. Uh, there was some argument that I made about something. I don't remember what it was last year. And we, some group from Nova Scotia reached out to us and said, we essentially used your argument in front of, you know, as a deputation mm -hmm. uh, for something. So it, because I would like to get ahead of the curve on that, A, do we have your permission to post those oh, on the site? Absolutely. And, and I'll get that from you in a format maybe that makes that easy for people or a link to the original source. So people can actually look at these two studies because I think yes. they're very, very topical, particularly the the Canada one having to do with the uh, the phase out, uh, I think is very, and it's it's very short. Yes. Good to know. Both it, of them quite short. Yeah, it's in a magazine and called Policy Options, the first paper of, or article of 2018. So I think you can just download from that. If not, go to my website at uh, the Department of Geography, University of Toronto. All right. And if you want yeah. more than that, you'll have to sign up for an undergrad degree at the University of Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Professor Danny Hart. A great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we're going to go a little late, but that's okay, to our second and final music break. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT to 9.5 FM. And we're going to be back in just a minute, just for a short sort of abbreviated end section here. We're going to talk about food policy. We'll be right back. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, or on the podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. Uh, we're going to close out the section now with uh, Stephen. I actually didn't hear your answer. I asked you over the break. Did you have any any other thing, anything you wanted to add to? Well, I, I'm always I'm always struck, I think, by the difference in tone between the scientists and really almost everyone else <laughs> in a level of which there is a, a willingness, I think, uh, to just directly report where we actually are and the starkness on, on, on what that actually sort of indicates, uh, you know, the, 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 the true hill that we are trying to trying to climb and versus even, you know, I feel like those of us who spend most of our time trying to, you know, trying to, to work forward and trying to find other ways can you can forget a little bit about just a how little we know uh, from a standpoint of a scientist's perspective and then also just how little power we really have um, uh, from a standpoint of uh, or, or how little we've done currently sorry not how power we have but how much how much there is still more to do and I think every time we talk to uh, to someone who's like been studying this especially for as long as he has you get that sort of like well, I did the work, and it's not good. You know, like, like <laughs> we looked into it, and, and it's, it's not, not good. good. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's it, it's that it's that 
sort of willingness to instead of sort of being like oh no we can still find this way to do it or these are the fun like there's all, of course value in all these other types of, of ways of talking about things looking at things but there's also value in just sort of being like if you just run the, the numbers if you just do the work that we know from science this is the hill we're trying to climb and yeah. that's a lot I also really like talking to professors about stuff they know about terrible things because like it's I mean Danny himself was sort of saying it but that thing about like Danny I, I hear that this is quite bad oh yes no it's quite bad oh yes like it's oh, very it very bad oh yes <laughs> but it's all in the sense of like you know I hear that's a good restaurant oh yes it was quite lovely like it's just in it's just so matter of fact because they've said it so many times that it's like it's not boring but it's like there, as you as you sort of alluded to at the beginning there's only so many ways you can dress it up for forty years before it's just a thing you say right what was <laughs> it's it's like that's yeah it's like asking Asking someone about math, but like, oh, this is complicated. Oh, yeah, it's very complicated. You know, it's like, like I've been trying to figure it out for a very long time, and I actually, like, I, as someone who spends for has spent forty years trying to learn this, I can still tell you that we barely know what we're doing, <laughs> and so it's kind of we should probably you know, act on that a little bit, you know. Yeah. So uh, what I wanted to do though is, I guess, a similar topic. It's a bit of a stretch. I, you know what? I'm not going to try and make a segue. No segue. Right. Change places. <laughs> uh, food stuff. So over the last week, you didn't talk about it because it's not really a news story. The only reason I want to talk about it now is because I wanted to talk about the human response to it. So I mean, it's a news story, but it's not really within our purview, really, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of borderline, uh, which is this whole price fixing thing with the bread. Um, Loblaws, a variety of grocers were were responsible for bre for bread fixing. Loblaws sort of some worked, both did it for an extended period of time, then sort of were also the ones to reveal that it happened, and then offered twenty five dollars gift certificates to everybody. Right. The and I mentioned my having taken the Eco One Hundred, the first year economics class uh, here at U of T as well. I also passed that class. Um, <laughs> Which is it has a like sixty five percent or sixty seven percent failure rate, so that's actually like something to brag about. Um, for a non math stream person, I'm I'm quite puffed about that. Um, and one of the things one of the things that I learned in that class that made me go uh, to hell with this economic stuff uh, wasn't because it was difficult, although math is not really my forte. Um, uh, is because I immediately was like, well, this is all nonsense. Not in the sense that it's like I thought the teacher was wrong or that I was sm smarter than the class or something, but that because like the things they were talking about obviously weren't true. So one of the things that they say in the first year economics class is that, you know, th this version of economics is, you know, here it requires some sort of like starting assumptions. And out of like say eight starting assumptions like six of them are obviously wrong. <laughs> uh, like obviously can't be true. And, and that undermines all of economic theory after that or all of that theory and so one of them is uh that people have access to perfect knowledge which the whole ad the entire industry that is advertising is trying very hard to make sure that's never true and it, it will never be true it can't be true and there's people whose entire there's entire industries based on making sure it's never true uh and then there's the assumption that there's no that there's never cartel behavior which obviously there is uh, so there, go ask your economics teacher about that. But what I'm more interested in was the human response. So apparently now there, it was an online study and, and it was sort of, you know, so take that. We're, we're not going to, that's also why I didn't want to spend too much time on this because from, we know the, the online poll was nonsense, but according to the online poll, a shocking number of people, uh, over half, uh, didn't actually care at all about being essentially scammed. Um, and the, the biggest number to me, and again, online poll, who knows? Maybe the grocers themselves paid for a bunch of bots to do this. 13% of respondents actually said it improved their view of the grocer. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Like every grocer or just like... Uh, well, the, the, whoever was involved, it was like Loblaws like group five, and No yeah, Frills yeah, yeah. and whatever. 
Um, but what I wanted to do, like the really what I wanted to say, I tweeted out. Nobody replied to it. That's fine. I'll get, we'll get you on the next one. Uh, but I, what I tweeted out was try and guess what I'm going to say about this. And, and the answer to that quiz, that pop quiz that nobody replied for, get the next one, uh, was uh, was that like do, was really not so much about the, it wasn't about the price fixing. It was about it wasn't about the the food industry. It was really just <coughs> excuse me. It was really just about how comfortable people are and how content they are that as long as things are sort of normal, quote, whatever they accept normal is, that they're perfectly fine being manipulated, abused and robbed as long as it sort of feels equal. Right. Like if you were like, hey, why is that whole equality thing where like even was it chimps or or some no, something even like lower down the intelligence chain than chimps. But it was like something like squirrels or something uh, that reacted to that, you know, getting different size jelly beans or something like that. Like there's an inherent you don't require higher thought to have this concept of fairness. It was sort of using animal testing and. We're not going to get into that one, uh, but doing you know, I think ethical tests on animals to sort of demonstrate that they they exhibit you know basic behaviors like empathy and like fairness and stuff like that. And but we're as long as we're all being equally manipulated and taken advantage of, people seem to be pretty fine with it. And I wanted to draw a correlation to that to this entire other conversation, which is that you know people are like eh, as long as you're not being singled out, people seem pretty comfortable being taken advantage of, lied to manipulated and 13% of them apparently say yes please may I have another I don't know that's all I really had to say about it other than I'm sort of shocked but not shocked well I I think I think what it should go I think what it should point to uh, if there is a learning about something like it does it was yeah it, it was weird that it is I did find the reaction to the news very interesting that it really did not seem to land on people people did not seem to care about the fact that they were being charged more for bread which again is kind of a hard thing bread is not that expensive and I think part of that is probably the fact that you know bread is relatively cheap and it's therefore hard to hide a, it's easy to hide a price increase when it's only a couple well, bucks it, yeah. yeah it's hard to and, and people don't understand the prices of anything right now right um, but I would point out that if we're if we're okay with just the price increasing on bread because uh, because just grocers feel like making more money then I refuse to accept the argument that we cannot pay people fairly for the rest of the food labor that they're doing you know like I don't it doesn't like if you're willing to give shareholders more money for absolutely no good reason except that they want it how can you not accept paying more for the food so it's grown ethically and paid paying fair wage and you know in right. not destroying the world like right. do that but give all the money to the workers exactly you know it's <laughs> right. like we can pay more for bread just pay the people who are you know harvesting their wheat all right. Well, let's leave it there. Go read any uh, Harvey's papers. And other than that, have a good green week, folks. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you all real soon. Take care.